the Talk Word. I'm Marty Dundix, Editor-in-Chief of Weekly Humorous Magazine, and this is Talk Word, a fun little podcast where professionally funny people come to tell awkward and cringeworthy stories, um, or just be awkward and cringeworthy in the moment, which sometimes we have too. Speaking of, we have a special guest today, a drop-in, not even planned. We're very lucky to have an award-winning, best-selling author, Bob Eckstein here. It's great to be here. Come on. Thanks I'm for, back. Thanks for being here, Bob. You're, yeah, this is our first two-timer guest on Talkward. Oh, my God. You've been on this before, and now you're coming back bigger and better than ever with more books. You brought me a book. Brought you a book. Um, so thank, uh, welcome to Talkward. <laughs> Bob thanks. Eckstein. Great to be back. I brought, I brought stories. I have a house guest. I wanted to share that with you. I haven't told you yet, but I have a house guest at the moment. Who's your house guest? The Steampunk King. His name is Bruce Rosenbaum, and he's in town to talk at different conventions or something. Yeah. And he's, um, you know, there's not a lot of money in steampunk right now, so he's crashing on my couch. That surprises me. <laughs> Did you have to steampunkify your couch to make it something that he's allowed to use? Yeah, there was a little, there's a few things we did. Like, we picked the most steampunk mug for him this morning. You had to add some levers, some unnecessary steam-activated levers. We tried to make the bottom buzzer to get into the building more confusing. <laughs> we, yeah, I tried to mix it up a bit. It has a couple like like uh, brass buckles on some leather straps for no reason. <laughs> it's interesting that you're so into steampunk. I forget about yeah. this. Yes. I, until all of a sudden you'll pop up something on the Facebook for an event, and it will be you speaking at like a sp- steampunk festival in Pennsylvania someplace, and you're like the keynoter, and it's like, what? And then you look at it, and and it's amazingly informative, and you have all these uh, like <laughs> illustrations and things that go with it. I'm waiting for it to come back. I'm waiting for the comeback. 1982, that's when it began, and I was right there at the forefront. Tell me, why 1982 did steampunk happen? It actually did start then, because that's when... Uh, Thomas Dolby came out with his album, The Age of the Wireless. Yeah. And OMD came out with this album called Dazzle Shift, which is considered like sort of the the first steampunk album. And then Blade Runner came out. And then all the geeks came out of everywhere it's a neat, to embrace this. You know, of any of the of the different mm, possible cosplay, Comic-Con, dress-up things, character... I find steampunk the most interesting. It's the easiest. You go in your basement, you just find all this crap that's lying around in the workshop. Yeah. Gears, like broken clocks and stuff. Yeah. There's your contact lens for steampunk or whatever. You just make it into a radio or something. That's steampunk. In the Weekly Humorous Shop, which is just like a, a bunch of cartoon uh, prints, some of your stuff is on there, some uh, funny T-shirts you can buy. But then there's like a higher end of stuff that we started selling. It was... Yeah. Uh, uh, nicer things but then i started selling some steampunk stuff and i thought of you you can buy uh uh like basically steampunk goggles i saw the goggles the goggles it's like for your flying zeppelin or whatever your your crazy steampunk machine are there any left do they sell out there's a couple left i'll save i'll save a pair for you all you need is a glue gun and you're on your way yeah it's steampunk yeah <laughs> it is embarrassing i did speak about it and um it's funny i went to the last steampunk talk and I'm on stage, and I realize I have like I'm the only person dressed like normally. I'm looking out to the crowd. And oh, they're all in costume. Everyone's in costume, and I didn't want to disappoint the group. And they're asking me why I'm not dressed, and I said, "No, no, no, um, I'm wearing steampunk underwear." <laughs> and then I did like some squats, and I said, "Oh, that really hurts," because it's all buckles. You get, no. Thank you for Straps. helping me with that. Yeah, lame no problem. Joke. Yeah. <laughs> It went over at the at the show like I a bet. fart in church. Oh really? Yeah. 
<laughs> it's a tough crowd to make laugh. The steampunk crowd takes himself very seriously. These are people who have seen like Blade Runner like 40 times. Do they have a steampunk society in Manhattan? No. It seems like a very hipster, Brooklyn-y type thing to do. You see, Manhattan's always like what's happening, what's cool. And steampunk being behind the curve, it's just reaching like the Midwest and those places. So like steampunk is reaching those places out there in the same way. Like, remember when Woody Allen would wear that army jacket he wore in all the movies? Mm-hmm. And everyone in Manhattan was wearing those at one time, buying them at the, like, Canal Street yeah. shops. Yeah, the army, army surplus stores, yeah. army navy stores. And then, and then Manhattan got over it yeah. after, like, two or three years. Everyone stopped wearing it. And then it started popping up in the Midwest. And everyone started wearing them out there. Same thing with steampunk. It's just getting out there. Steampunk is way in the rearview mirror from Manhattan. Mm-hmm. I really don't think that it's... Something. Unless a movie comes out to, to bring it back. And there is a movie coming up in November that looks like it's with, um, I'm trying to think who made it. Brian, what's his face? The famous director, Brian. Singer? No, no, Brian, the guy who did, like, he's an older guy. He's, he's got all these Oscars. Come on. Um, Did he make Titanic? No. No, that's Jim. Yeah. So I call all my directors by their first name. <laughs> Benny. Yeah. Frank? No. Is it Buddy? <laughs> Is it that uh, that Frank Ford Coppola? No. So there's a movie coming out that's very steampunky, and that might bring it back a little bit. Okay. And we're back to your goggle sales. I hope so. Means, Fingers crossed. Yeah. The goggles. So what's going to be the next item going up on the market? I'm wearing uh, this fun tie today that you noticed. It's, it's got skull and crossbones. So it's like a, it's like burgundy. A, so it's not really. It's an very... understated silly tie. So it looks like a boring banker's. You know, it's not, we're down get, on Wall Street. It's going to get respect when you walk into the boardroom. It just looks like a nice silk tie, but then you look at it and the icons on it that are smaller skull and crossbones. I don't think you notice it right away. You think you mean business, yeah. or? That you have a sense of humor, but then if you your mood changes on the other side, you have what? Oh, it's just more. It's the same thing. Oh, that was like Captain Crunch or something. That'd be something. That would be nice. Yeah. But maybe for the next. And then we have other weird things. I mean, there's more just like these are actually uh, sunglasses I'm holding up. These are from the store, but these are made of wood. Oh, isn't I, that cool? Wood sunglasses. Yeah. Then you know. know you're from Williamsburg. Yeah, they're very hip. Yeah. They're very hip. Will you be getting the wood hats? They have wooden bow ties that I did. I am not selling. But they have them. Yeah. They're just bow ties that are made of wood. I have the deluxe pair of these sunglasses. They're yeah. 3D. This way, if I ever find myself with 3D needs, I have... Yeah, the whole world. So we were talking about your book earlier, talking about 3D. Oh, 3D. yeah. So um, for those listening at home, uh, Weekly Humorist is going to be putting out a book of all of the uh, the best so far, a big collection, the best of the, of the site. So... Mm-hmm. In, in stores by the holidays, for the holidays, it's Weekly Humorist, Bound Not Gagged, collection number one, which in, you will be in, and obviously. I'm, I'm suggesting maybe the subtitle being th- the first 3D ebook. The first 3D printed mm-hmm. ebook. There's got to be a contest in here for the fans to say what the title, full title could be. Maybe that's the way to go. People vote on the title of the The book. full title can be in very small print on the inside flap. <laughs> <laughs> that way it can take up many, many characters. And the winner gets a discount on the sale of the book. Sure. I can do that. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. 10% off. Going a little bit. Let's say we get five and see how it goes. This book publishing stuff is very exciting. I mean, this is old hat for you, but you brought me a very nice book. 
um, today that you signed, which I enjoy. I have your uh, bookstores book also I, in my library. I, I know publishing. I you know do. Pu- I write for Writers Digest now. Yeah, I saw that um, you did a a, a great uh, illustrated uh, diary of the writers. Uh, convention? What was it called? It was it was actually the Writers Digest annual convention. Mm-hmm. It's this really great conference for writers who from all around the country come in and they get a chance to meet experts in the field, and they give them the nuts and bolts to getting published and stuff. And it's really helpful. I really had a great time meeting all these people, and um, <clears throat> I'm still getting feedback from that months ago. And for a book convention, there's a lot of. Uh Panel discussions, how to get published if you're just starting out, stuff like that, like advice. Yeah, one of them was a screenwriter who's just as dynamo, who gives you the incentive and the motivation to finishing your screenplay. Like, like that's a big theme, and the whole convention is finishing something you started. Yeah. Because everyone has like that dream of finishing the book, and everyone needs that like push across the finish line. And there's also like a lot of things to just know and how to make that story work because so many people are working on a book that has a problem and they don't quite know how to fix it. They don't quite know yet how to pull it all together. And we talked about different points that a book should have and what makes a book really connect with a reader. And I myself took all these notes and I came away so inspired and meeting all these other people too with the same problems of me, with of mine. With, who were going through the same thing, getting their book across the finish line, was extremely helpful. And on top of it, one big point of the conference is a thing called Pitch Slam, which is they set up this room with all these agents, and you get a chance to have five minutes with all the different people, and you can explain your book idea or maybe explain what your manuscript is about if it's already done, and they might consider hiring you or giving you some help. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like your elevator pitch opportunity. Yeah, and okay. it's, they actually even train you. Before we had the uh, the whole day doing pitch slam, the day before, a couple of experts had you rehearse what you might say, where to get some, some good talking points, how to get the most effective time with, with this potential agent. And some of the people are actually publishers too, so you're going straight from uh, a book idea to – speaking with a publisher even. Mm-hmm. And so it's very exciting, and I capture that by drawing some of the experiences of some people. Like, for instance, there's, there was this one 14-year-old girl who came from Texas, and she's really talented, and she had a chance to talk about her book ideas with all these agents, and she came away, actually, with some contacts. And it's an opportunity. Most people would wait, and who knows if you ever have the opportunity. And yeah. They facilitate this, this chance to meet all these people. And it's a multi-day event. It was. It was like three or four days, and it was from morning till the evening. But I never got tired. I was so pumped up, especially this one screenwriter who's done some some movies we all heard of. His name was um, Jacob Kruger. And I left there, like, just so inspired that I wanted to write screenplays. And I left there saying, I'm going to be working now a little bit more on TV and movies instead of just books because he just... Gave me such an excited, you know, frame of mind when I left that room. And because you've already had so much uh, success with understanding how a book can get made, you can probably take that knowledge and make a, a TV or a movie project using the same kind of skills. Like, it's 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 parallel in a lot of ways. Yeah, there's differences. And then once you realize what your audience is, you could see how you can mold it and stuff. And it becomes exciting where you know you can take something that's in the book form 
and what it takes to turn it into, let's say, a TV show. Uh, and that's happening to me now with my bookstore book. There's um, a studio that wants to make it into a travel show, and they've been working on it for the last two months. And I've been learning a lot through that process. And also, um, it's very rewarding yeah. to see that the, the first idea grow into something greater. I could definitely see how the bookstore book, um, this is uh, a bookstore book where you profile bookstores from around the world, and you yeah. illustrated all the bookstores, and you profiled them. And uh, big, big-time bookstores all over the place. And um, I could see how that would be an amazing... I mean, how many episodes would that cover? How many books do you cover in that in that book? Or how many bookstores do well, you cover Well, I did in 150, book? and there's okay. 75 in the book. Okay. And I've always thought that you have a 75 would eventually see the, the light of day in a sequel. And it doesn't mean that because it's in the book it needs to be an episode. We could do bookstores that are new. Yeah. As long as they feel like they're bookstores that people should learn about. But we're trying to emphasize the, the emotional component, the, the personal experience of going to a bookstore. So the emphasis now is how a bookstore has changed a person's life. Mm-hmm. You know, and for a lot of people, it's all different things, whether it's getting your children to read or for some people, it's changing their career. Like, like for instance, Mark Marin was someone in my book. And he's someone who um, was working in a bookstore and the owner of the bookstore changed his life and changed the direction of what he was going to do and, and had him go into comedy. And there's a lot of stories like that. Another example is Bob Oldenkurt from Better Call Saul. Mm-hmm. And he was kind enough to help me and be in my book. And he told the story how a store in, in Chicago changed his career and got him into acting and it exposed him to a world that he would not have been exposed to before. Yeah. So And that's what's exciting is, is to show how bookstores are important to people now and encourage people to, to realize that they're an intellectual hub in each town and that you can't get that in a hardware store going to, to your Dollar General yeah. that you can get from a bookstore. What was your bookstore when you were growing up that changed your life? You grew up kind of around here. Well, I you? grew up in the Bronx, Yeah, but my bookstore story would be that in Strands I had my first sexual experience. That is quite as a... That's that's quite a story. I didn't share it at the last book event because I did have my mom with me. <laughs> Was it the strand here in Manhattan? Yeah. In 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 the one that I'm thinking of near Union Square. Yeah. <laughs> what, which which section? Downstairs, probably downstairs. It gets dark down there. It used to be that it was very gloomy and dark. Yeah. It was like when I was a teenager, there was like really limited places to find some privacy. <laughs> okay. I was a young lad trying to learn more about the world. And Is the, that the section that you, you had some fun in? Yeah. What section was that? Sci-fi? <laughs> <laughs> no, if you were sci-fi, you'd be by yourself. Yeah, it was, it was sexually, You would be in self-help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, I think that I, it was very fortunate for me that it was at a time there was no cameras. Yeah. The security cameras. You don't think, anyway. You hope. Yeah. It would help the book, though, if it went viral. Definitely. So, in that, But that's... My story is that Strand Bookstore was, like, one of the stores I hung out at. Excuse me. And, um, yeah, good memories there. <laughs> and I'm trying <laughs> to think of any other books. As I black out now in embarrassment. But, no, that's the whole point of this podcast, right? And I was supposed to come up with an awkward story. Yeah, that was good. So that was... This, Absolutely. That was a, that was a very fundamentally well, awkward I'm, story I'm very disappointing you. because... Um, no. I'll tell one more awkward story. Okay. 
I did lose my virginity while on the telephone with my mom. That is very awkward <laughs> for everybody involved. Was there a call waiting? <laughs> if anyone's still listening at this point, I was actually um, at my girlfriend's house. Can I ask if you star 69? Oh, <laughs> thank you. Tip your waitresses. Now, I forgot what that does. That, that calls back the person you were on the phone with. Yeah, that calls back the last number dial. I am, or I'm, back in the day when people had telephones that had numbers that did that. This phone on my desk is a rotary. Maybe that could do it. I don't know if phones today actually called Star 69. No, I was telling my mom I was going to be late. I was at a friend's house. And hello. <laughs> oh, this is happening right now, huh? Okay. Mom, I got to put you on hold. <laughs> yeah. And 14 seconds later, you were back to the phone. <laughs> I, was a, I was a sex operator on the phone. Oh. <laughs> Oh, what man. a surprise to have a... my mom call in that 800 section. Yeah, number. exactly. Very yeah. odd. Um, uh, 1-800-German-Midgets. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is the new book that you're, you brought with me. It's The Illustrated History of the Snowman, which is yeah. a, a re-booked book. Right. This is an updated version of a book you had done, had which done was a, The History of the I Snowman. I did a straightforward book 10 years ago on yeah. the subject... And it had limited amount of illustrations and images. Yeah. And some things have happened in the history of the snowman since. There's been really, developments. We needed to address that. And the world's record, a new world's record for the largest snowman in the world is 13 stories now. And it's no longer a man. It's a woman. A woman is now holding the record for largest snow. And woman. you know what? It's about time. It has been about time. This is something that bothered me for years. And this is a... I know. All it all pulls together now. So that's what the illustration is on the cover here. Is it's this an the illustration. Tallest? I did a painting of this of this snowman that was made in Bethel, Maine, and this is a snowman that was made with cranes. I mean, wow. it took a whole like town to make this. It takes a village, and it was something that took months to make. And this is uh, is this two fir trees coming out of the this, snowman? There's huge Christmas trees coming out. They're the arms. Mm-hmm. The mouth is made out of, I believe, uh, truck tires. Mm-hmm. Eyelashes made of ski, of skis, and this enormous scarf surrounds the neck. The and what ca- about the carrot? The carrot was made by the elementary school. Everyone in the elementary school made this enormous paper mache carrot. Now I remember going to school. We didn't do anything like that. Can you imagine? That was your like science project, is making a large carrot. It'd be funny if you, if, if you were like, oh, uh, the carrot's just the, uh, the world's largest carrot that they got, and they ruined Picking it. Back. <laughs> and they just shoved it in the snowman's face. Yeah, there uh, must have been multiple records they could have broke. Yeah. But one of the things they did was they had a contest in the town for who can guess when the, the snowman would melt. Did so the surrounding town just completely flood when it <laughs> melted? Like, by uh, that town in Maine, it you're really done. It really is big. Yeah. It's, it's very large, and um, I mean, anytime you need work permits to make a snowman, you know it's big. This is a big. Uh, so, is this based off a photograph you saw? Kind of. I idealized it for the sake that make it as sexy as could be. I do that with all my illustrations. I try to pick the elements and the mood, but I also didn't try to make it something more that the photo couldn't capture. Mm-hmm. And in this case, I try to capture how the town was overshadowed by this snowman. Mm-hmm. And so the painting goes around the back of the book. Yep. Marty's looking at it now. It's, I'm it seeing some of, of these great blurbs. You have uh, uh, Deepak Chopra. 
yeah. gave you a nice blurb for this book. So yeah, that's yeah. nice to know that Deepak has endorsed your We're sermon. tight. What? We're tight. Oh, I, I, absolutely. I know, I know. Actually, it started a friendship when he came out with like one of his early books, Did Change My Life, and I wrote him a note saying so. Really? And he replied back. We kept in touch over the years, and I really do email him, and I he's someone who was kind enough to help me with my book, as well as there's a couple of other people back there who are really dear to me. Roz Chast. Who is a really excellent New Yorker cartoonist, mm-hmm. and we're friends, and she's going to be in my next book that comes out next year. I have a book collection, the ultimate cartoon book of book cartoons, which is a collection of cartoons about books and bookstores. Okay. And in that book also includes another person in the back of the book, Leanna Fink. Mm-hmm. And she's also um, a New Yorker cartoonist. And then, um, oh, you got to read the one blurb here by Atlas Obscura, is it? No, no. Yeah. Bob Eckstein is a national treasure. I can't hear that enough. National treasure. They actually changed it. It was, they said something different, but I retweaked it a bit. He should be stored behind security glass? Is that what it means? I think they had said, <laughs> no, initially it said Alan Alda is a national treasure. <laughs> and I took creative liberty with that. Yeah. But Similar. I, yeah, it's, it's, it's very close. You were just talking uh, to Alan Alda a I couple him. of weeks ago. I met him at the Milford Writers and Readers Festival in Milford, Pennsylvania. And he was really kind. And um, he told a story about embracing our enemies because he was in a room with polarizing political sides. Hmm. And it came out in the questions, in the Q&A. We, we learned that there were people from both sides and people were asking about, like, Trump and these, these times and, you know, how do you get harmony with people and how do we come together as a country in these times? And that's exactly his wheelhouse. His book is about everyone listening to each other, people communicating with each other. And he, he went on on the show about, in this middle of the talk, about enemies and how you need to sometimes sit down and talk to enemies. And for me, that really connected because... I had an enemy in college. You had an enemy in college? And um, and you went to Pratt. I went to Pratt Institute, and we met up later, and we did sort of bond. We, we talked, and we kind of buried a hatchet, and that turned out to be my wife. And we got your married. wife was your enemy in college? Yeah, and for 12 years, we had not spoken to each other. There was no reason to, but... We came across each other again later at a funeral, and we um, got along better this time, and we wound up eloping to Iceland. And, wow. Uh, I yeah. didn't know any of this. Well, believe me, the both of us didn't see it happen either. Yeah, this was something totally unexpected, and um, it kind of proves that you really can you know, do anything. You could expect people can come together under the most adverse conditions. I mean... I would never expected that to happen, but we're together now. You've been together for a while. We are been married by twenty years, and I love her more than ever. We we really get along really great, and she's an artist who's actually pretty um, renowned in her field. 
She's um, in museums like the Whitney and the MoMA and different wow. places. Yeah, she's like really been successful with her artwork. So I can go to a museum and see her stuff on the walls? You could see it in different places like that. Even like the Victoria Albert, is it? Yeah, what's the Victoria Albert Hall Museum in London? She's there too. She's in the, the Met Collection, like in their archives. When you're hanging in the museums and you're an artist, can you just walk into any museum and they're trying to get you to pay like whatever the donation amount is and you can just be like, um, I'm on the third floor, section five, um, I'm in for free. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry. Please we, go ahead. Have whatever you want at the snack bar. You know, when we went to MoMA, they type in her name. She explains she's in the collection. They type in her name and she's got some VIP treatment. Really? Yeah. I would we, hope so. We go in for free. And we cut in line at the cafe, <laughs> and we say other things. Is that true? Yeah, we were at the cafe. That's great. We we wear the like the headphones. We pretend like you know we're saying things about other people's work. Yeah. Yep. That's exciting. It is. I'm very proud of her. So it's kind of neat, and then it kind of humbles me because what I do is like I'm doing work for like the weekly humors. Yep. That's, That's doing, big time. Doing cartoons. Doing cartoons. Well, it's hard to compare, like going to the MoMA and Weekly Humor. <laughs> but, but really... We're we, both in Manhattan. <laughs> but, but Weekly Humor should talk to some of these museums, which have like a little exhibit. I'd love that. You know, I'd love to do something um, at all with the Society of Illustrators. Oh, that's a, that's a great idea. So if we could make that happen, I would love... I mean, I love the Society. Obviously, it's, you know, I've been going with her since I was, I went to, you know, Syracuse, studied illustration. All of my professors were old school Society of Illustrator guys. Um, John Thompson, Bob Dacey, uh, Murray Tinkleman, like, uh, Mom Buchanan. You know stuff. These are, re- these are all my, uh, these are my professors from college. These are just like the guys that taught me how to, how to draw and stuff. And by the way, and they not would, reading from a list. They would hang, uh, they would always talk about, you know, the old school going to the society and you go, you know, you go to the, the bar and you hang out and, and everyone just hangs out there. And uh, yeah. I would go and do figure drawing uh, with uh, John Thompson on what they do it like Tuesdays or Thursdays or something. And they would have like jazz music playing in the back. And it would be like either costumed or nude. It was awesome. It was the scene. It was the scene, man. But it would be like professional illustrators and students. Yeah. And it was no, like listen, 10 bucks. They're still doing that. Yeah. My friend Wayne uh, Alfano, he runs the sketch class. And the problem I see with the society only would be that I'm sure there's a waiting list for the mm. shows. Oh, definitely. They have only limited space, and they only give the second floor for the cartoons. Yeah. Well, they have. A, I mean, they have an amazing permanent collection downstairs, right? That has like all these like old, um, like the real classic type. They always, yeah, they always make that covers. illustration. Yeah. And they always have like the humor. Second banana gets the second floor. But I tell you, if we had an exhibit, I could put my wife in a place for. But finally, this is something finally. now I could really square away some things because. This has really been bothering me a lot with her attitude. And, uh, well, you were recently in, um, I think you had a weekly humorous cartoon in a show in, like, D.C.? No, this was a nice thing. This was at the Wilkes-Barre Museum for Wilkes-Barre University. Mm. They have this beautiful museum space, and a private collector named Andrew Sardoni. He's one of the biggest cartoon collectors in the world. And he had a collection of um, Charles Adams and different different cartoons, as well as illustrators. He had illustrators like um, Norman Rockwell and the classics. Slip in my mind right now who else he had, but a lot of older guys. Rockwell Kent? Is that somebody? Yeah. Yeah, that's Absolutely. Funny. Maxfield Parrish? Yep. 
No, oh boy. Yes. It's a bunch of names. And the show was marvelous. And then all of a sudden you'd have my cartoon, and it was a cartoon I want to describe was the clown giving a massage. <laughs> it's one of my favorite cartoons. And then the, the guy <laughs> saying, for $20 more, you can have a happy ending. Yeah. And at the show is jolting to see <laughs> these amazing paintings and all of a sudden have my cartoon from the Weekly Humorous there. And when I first went to the museum... <laughs> and you have a hand job joke. <laughs> <laughs> I get there and the curator and the... Uh, actually, the curator was also the dean of the college. His wife was in front of my cartoon. And there's this guy who came who was like a Truman Capote wannabe mm-hmm. he's wearing a white suit and a, and a red bow tie and he's wearing a hat with a feather and he came up with some really thin uh, girlfriend who was wearing like leopard skin something nice and he looked at the cartoon and there was like a, at the moment i arrived and there was like about 10 people around this cartoon and he announced to the group this is awful he <laughs> <laughs> said and he walked away <laughs> with this, like, he pranced away. <laughs> and I said to the group, I said, that's mine. <laughs> and the woman, who is the wife of the dean, said, I love this cartoon. And Good. She really, as a matter of fact, I had then given her a cartoon, the original. She told me her, a favorite cartoon that I had done was a, another sexual cartoon. And she said she has it by her nightstand. And I'm going to describe this. It's always great to describe cartoons over the radio. Uh, this cartoon was this bed that was covered with like 30 different pillows. And uh, the woman's telling her friend that by the time they remove all the pillows from the bed, she's usually too tired for sex. It's yeah, great. It's cute. Yeah. So hit the wheelhouse with the dean's wife. Yeah. And it was a really nice experience. They, they made speeches. And they talked about... You know, how they're helping the community because it was a sort of a fundraiser. And I have to tell you, because you ran the cartoon, I was in that show, and I owe you a thank you. Oh, well, I'm, I was ex- exuberantly excited to see it. on. I think you had taken a photo of it on Facebook, it, like in the book. It was like, oh, my God. And, you know, you're in great company with some of the people that were in this collection, but it yeah. was in this, like, printed book and everything. Oh, it's a beautiful catalog. Yeah. And I am – I don't take it for granted that you and me met – and it's fate that you have embraced my stuff, and we became friends. And I think it's great. Thanks. Oh, it's it's been, it's been wonderful meeting you. I think it was. I don't know how. I don't know how you first reached out. I think it was just over email. I, I don't know if it was even a friend of a friend. No, it might have been an introduction. I don't remember. It was a while back, and. Um, I, I like to see the magazine grow and watching yeah. all the different things that are happening. It's really exciting and the evenings and stuff that you're, you're and getting all these comedians. That's great. Yeah, the comedy nights that you never come to, but that's okay. I know you're very busy. Yeah, it always winds up that I'm out of town. So Always out of town. Uh, but you do let me join you when you go to your fancy um, uh, restaurant down in Chinatown. What's you were that there place the last called? time, Jaya 888. And they're still open as far as the health board is concerned. So if you're in uh, Lower Manhattan in the Chinatown area... Jaya 888 is Off the name. Off Canal Street. It's on Baxter. And I haven't been there myself because I have I haven't been in Manhattan. And that's why I made a point to visit you because it's one of the rare times I had a moment. Because when you're doing the books, it's like you have to promote it. Yeah. You have to do the medicine show. Otherwise, the book won't survive. And at the moment, I have three books to promote. So it's like 
a little bit more than usual. Yeah. And I'm doing radio. I'm doing what are the other books? You have the Snowman book. The bookstore book. The bookstore book is still going strong. And because it's in different languages now, and because it's kind of come back a bit, I've had to promote it. Mm-hmm. So there's been some events in which I had to go to. And I'm doing that. Like, I'm going to Miami Book Fair. I'm going to New Mexico for that book fair. The third item is a box set of postcards based on the bookstore book. And it's my paintings, including some stores that are new and were just recently painted that were not in the original book store book, but they're new uh, paintings. And it's this beautiful collection. They really did a beautiful job reproducing it and the whole uh, box. It's a really neat way it opens up and stuff. And it's 50 different stores. And I've been promoting that because um, a lot of bookstores are getting excited about that and it's helping them get exposure. I feel like wasn't there a book in... Brooklyn near me, maybe like Carroll Gardens that was featured and then it closed, but then something reopened that was also yeah. a small bookstore. I think, is that Books or Magic? No. Well, it was Book Court that was Book originally Court, there, that's right, Book Court. That's the story that involves Robin Williams. He used to go to that store because he was filming around the corner. I was the last person to do a book event at that bookstore, and mm-hmm. they closed. And then a store opened up nearby called Books on Magic. And that place does tons of events. They do. Yeah. I just went to the last book event they had. I mean, they don't do a lot, but they do big ones. They did a book event Monday, and it was actually too big to have in the store, and they had it at St. Francis College, and it was Michael Palin. Michael Palin, Michael Palin had... From a, Mighty Python. From Mighty Python. He had a book event on Monday, and... I got a chance to meet the people from the store while I was there to attend that book event. And I got a chance to iron out our details because I'm doing an event at Books or Magic on December 7th, I think, or December 10th in December sometime, though. Yeah, I'm not awesome. sure when. Yeah, that's going to be great. Yeah, I'll stop by to that. And I'll, I'll name drop. I got a chance to meet Michael Palin, who I've been in touch with for years. Yeah. We had been friends, but... I got a chance to hang out with him on Monday before his event. What was his most favorite uh, Monty Python character? You know, he didn't. We never really had that type of talk. We, you know, he doesn't really talk about Monty Python a whole lot. Like we talked about. Did he? Was he the one who said, "I fart in your general direction"? Was that his line? That might have been him when he's on top of the fort. That might be John Cleese saying it to Michael Palin. Maybe yeah. Getting pummeled by a flying cow. Yeah. Yeah. That might. That's the scene. But, you know, Michael likes to talk about his book projects and, like, ripping yarns would be something more, like, to his, like, more emotionally attached to that because it was about his childhood. Yeah. And we both have an obsession for the missing Sir John Franklin, which is about his new book. And it's the book that I'm working on now. We're both working on the same subject matter. So we talked about that. We both love Arctic Explorers. And of course, Tell me bo- about that. What's that about? Is it a missing boat? Um, well, this is based on real facts. His book is about the actual ship. There was two ships. One was the Erebus and one was the Terra who, that got lost when they were looking for the Northwest Passage, which is the route that you would take to go north of Canada to get to China. And in, it was, I think, 1844 or well, maybe it was 1845, when those ships went missing and got uh, locked in ice packs and never made it. 
And then there was the search parties that went out looking for these explorers who were heroes back in England. And um, the whole country was riveted to the news of what would happen to them. And what Michael did was he went back and, and wrote about the history of that ship being built and where it went. And then the latest findings, which is in 2014, they found each of the ships in the waters of Canada over by, um, well, one was Terra Bay, actually, ironically named. The other one, I think, was by Hudson Bay. But anyway, he wrote about the whole story with that. And I had been writing about the fictional story. I took the facts and ran with it and talk about the search parties and it turned it into a dark comedy, mm -hmm. which actually he has kind of looked it over and gave me some notes and kind of helped me with a little bit, which was really kind of him. And I'm going to go back and just finish that. So your book is not going to be an illustrated type drawing book. It's going to be all be... illustrated, actually. It is it, an illustrated it's book. A, it's a diary. It's a lost diary that's all handwritten and has all these drawings and doodles. Okay. And so it's all kind of fun. So it's a historical fiction Right. Based so, on a real thing. And his book is really very, very committed to historical facts, very well researched. He traveled around the world, going to all the different places, retracing the tracks of the ship before it went on the Arctic uh, up by the North Pole. Yeah, this ship had actually gone to Antarctica as well. Mine is all a farce. Mine is a romance, it's a little mystery. It's a children's book. It's a gay farce. It's everything. It's a, a little something for everyone. Everyone's got something. Yeah. When you think of doing a book, do you think to yourself, what kind of a book can I do where I'll get to travel around the world uh, on the project of making a book? You know, you know like, it doesn't like always a, work that way. That you, you say, can what can assume. I do? Like, let's let's do an illustrated guide of the best beaches. Or something like that. You know, but can you can you do that? Do you work backwards like that? I know some people who are, who can do that. They're lucky enough to review beaches for Lonely Planet series. Yeah. But it's very seldom that a publisher could afford to send people around the world. Someone like Michael Palin would get that support. Mm -hmm. I had traveled around the world for my Snowman book, but I spent the money myself. It cost me around twenty two thousand dollars. Wow. And I spent seven years going through Europe and other places. And I couldn't do it all myself. Bet you kept all those receipts. Kept all the receipts, but, <laughs> you know, I learned a lot, too, that, you know, I assumed, like everyone who writes their first book, that, oh, this is going to be easy. I'm going to make millions anyway. So this is the drop in the bucket. Yeah. But then I learned later that I get, like, 8% of all the book sales. So it's not that easy as I thought. When it came to the bookstore book, that was my second book, and I learned my lesson about how to budget myself and how to be realistic, I did have a team of people that I sent out and I made contacts to different people in different corners of the world. So I had someone from Australia help me, someone from Africa, someone from India. People went in different directions. I also went around the world as I could, but due to time and, and money constraints, I had to be a little bit more realistic. Yeah, they can't just put you in a hot air balloon and make you go around the world. Yeah. Researching bookstores. That'd be something fun. That's my next book. That's Put Bob Eckstein in a, in, a balloon. In, a, in a hot air balloon. And good luck. Like a steampunk hot air balloon. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good use for the goggles. You know what we got to do? With your new imprint, yeah. I have a book idea. I wanted to work on um, a baby name book, you know? Yeah. But for cats, for kittens. <laughs> a complete 
kitty cat name book. You've you've been you've been kind of dipping your toe in the cat world. I wanted to. I can tell. And they keep kicking me out. <laughs> They're like, "Do you have a cat?" I don't have a cat. They can tell. Well, they found That's out. what it is. They're was... like, "If you were a cat person, we would probably let you do this book, but we can tell that you're being a fake cat person." Yeah. Well, I started the project and then the publisher said they found out on Facebook that I don't own a cat. Is that are you being serious? Sure, because they, they explained <laughs> to me that they were expecting me to, to attend CatCon, which is in San Francisco, yeah. and also be very involved with the cat community. Yeah. And they said to me, said, "Do you own a cat?" I said, "Is that true?" You're he like, said, "I can own a cat by later today." I, I said, "I don't own a cat." I said, "I'm allergic to cats." I, but you have to and say, you're allergic. That's great. Yeah. And I also, but I stopped short of saying I hate cats. <laughs> I didn't share that. Yeah. I was thinking it, but I didn't say it. <laughs> um, but what does one thing have to do with the other? Do you have to be a chicken to know what an egg is? You know what I mean? I'm writing about cat names. Yeah. That doesn't mean I have to have, like, you know. I I'm think advising. that they thought you were being disingenuous with your interest in cat culture. I might have been. Because yeah. you, know, you know where the money, the money is, some of those people who are crazy cat people who will buy anything cat-related. And as a result now, there are a lot of owners out there who don't know how to name their Jewish cat yeah. or their Irish cat yeah. or give their cat a poor name. And those people, until the book is out, are going to be on their own Can devices. you give us a little taste of what your advice would be for such a cat name? Maybe give us, give me an Irish cat porn name. Irish cat porn name. I'm not going to say, they're all dirty. And you know me. I, we were talking <laughs> about this earlier. I am an altar boy. Yeah. And my mom's listening. So let's keep this clean. Um, Hi, Bob's mom. But I'll give you a name for a, a bookstore cat. Okay. Downton Tabby. Ah, it's pretty good. Okay, here's a Hollywood name for your cat. All right. James Spader. It's good. You know, help control the pet population. Oh, God. You know what? This isn't such a great idea for cats. <laughs> All right, I have to go back to the drawing board. Come up with some better names. All right. Uh, I'll work on it. You work on it. It's not that easy. It doesn't seem easy. How long did those... <laughs> the title said, uh, two million cat names. 1,700 of them are in this book. That's why I said. <laughs> and then the publishers who were looking at my proposal said, can you, can you clarify this? What did you mean by two million? I go, oh, there's millions of names. I, go, I don't have the time to come up with all of them. I go, but we could just imagine. It's endless. Just imagine how many other books I could do for you. But this is a sequel. You yeah. make this, you know, a volume set. This is going to be like an encyclopedia. You, you don't just have one. We're going to have like 15 volumes of this book. You don't want to shoot my load. Oh, sorry, Mom. Uh, you don't <laughs> want to just put it all in one book. Yeah. You can't just get... You're just getting the A's. All the A's. What do you want, all the way to Z? That's a lot. Mr. Bumbles. Yeah. Bumblicious. <laughs> Bumblewise. Bumble Senior. Just do... 500 names and the variations of Bumbles. I did you try pitch? Did you try doing the book slam pitch with this with this cat? I book? went in. I went in there with a different idea because I felt like this would be it would alienate my interview. So I just tried to do something straight. Yeah. And I did go with the cat proposal to two big publishers, and and both times they were really serious until I found out that I hate cats. <laughs> They're like, get out of here. <laughs> were they both cat people that you were talking to? Yeah, the one person was a really cat mm -hmm. person, and she was really not too pleased. She was going to CapCon. 
I feel like a good uh, niche book for you, knowing what I see that you post of um, your, your when, when you aren't in New York City, you live more in the country. You have a, yeah. a place that has more greenery and backyard yeah. antics, and you're constantly doing fun videos of a squirrel with a horse head. That is uh, not the best way to describe it. It's an operetta. Okay, so it's being set. To please music. explain to the people listening what you do okay. to squirrels. Okay, what I did was we sat up by the bird feeder, yeah. a horse head on a cord. It's a plastic horse head, right. guys. It's not a, an actual horse head. Right, and this hangs in just the right height yeah. for a squirrel to come by, and in inside this plastic horse head, it's encrusted with seeds and peanut butter. The peanut butter actually as a a glue mm-hmm. to keep the seeds in place. The squirrel puts his head into the, the, the horse head and doesn't realize that he is now on stage. I am filming him to music, dancing, as he's trying to eat. And, of course, we have also the Darth Vader helmet yeah. next to it as we have a whole plot. So you've inadvertently gotten this hungry squirrel yeah. to perform for you while he is eating and enjoying himself. No harm is coming to the to the lovely squirrel, but he is now dancing around wearing a, a either a horse uh, head or a Darth Vader head. No, 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 no. You got it all wrong. The horse head's for the squirrel. The, yeah, that's what I said. Yeah, but the Darth Vader helmet's not for the squirrel. That's for oh. the chipmunk. Oh, I'm the, sorry. The chipmunk. Forgive me. Because the opening <laughs> is not big enough for the squirrel. What was I thinking? Now, now this is the genius. Yeah. The genius is that they are on a slab of stone that has pebbles and it is set so just the height that they can't be comfortable, so they are skidding, but gives the impression that they are actually dancing. Mm-hmm. So when they're trying to reach up with their paws and they have their head up in the and the horse head, their feet are on their tippy toes and they're moving around as if they're performing. They're kind of tap dancing, right? Yeah. So I've worked out a narrative to this. It's um, right now I'm only up to the third act. It's very complicated, and this is a true story. My um. My wife has some contacts in the production field and the film business, and we had uh, reached out to some talent mm-hmm. to help us with this. And they got involved at some point. They all quit because they thought it was, they thought it was ridiculous. It is totally ridiculous. <laughs> they got on board initially. But it's really funny And to the watch. excitement lasted for 18 minutes. They're like, is this it? And then I would give them like these files, and they said, you really expect me to <laughs> score this and stuff? And I would give them all these notes and stuff, and they said, "You got to be joking." Mm. And I, but I do, I do have interest in this. I actually have the New Yorker asking me to show it to him when it's finished. And so I, want, the you web, to, I the want you to show it to me when it's finished. It's coming to you after the New That's Yorker. Rejects everybody it. else, after everybody rejects it, right here. Yeah, the New Yorker is. Um, <clears throat> they have very high hopes. This, this is by. I mean, it's very good, but it's not Lincoln Center. No, but it definitely has potential. And then, um, I mean, with with you know uh, uh, special effects or filters, or you could make it look pretty zippy and cool. If you take that video of the squirrel, which is great on its own, but then add more to it, you could add more to it. We didn't speed up anything. It's yeah. them actually natural. Um, it's fun. We have I've gotten to know the crew. We have a craft table set up for them uh, after they. Come out of the horse head. I set something up like crumbs and stuff on the it's side. Very nice. It is. Their rider. Hopefully, their rider isn't too complicated. Only blue M and M's in their trailer. Stuff like that. Yeah. Well, they're all SAG members, so yeah. they all have their own guidelines. Yep. Anyway, that's one of the projects going on there, and uh, 
The second project that I enjoy seeing uh, from you every year, it seems, is your competition with your New York City neighbor with the uh, wreaths you put on the front door of your apartments. That was a lot of fun until they found out that they were being Facebooked and going viral. So well, what happened was that they, they had put up a, a Christmas wreath that was a little bit larger than ours. So you put up a normal size wreath, let's say. A very appropriate, very festive yeah. wreath that anybody else would say, that's putting me in the spirit. But our neighbors then had to take it up a notch, and they put up something that was a little bit, what I would say, like a crap tray. Trashy type of wreath, like it had, like bells and things like that. They had objects. Accoutrement. On it. And most people say that it's the scent, it's the sentiment of just the natural, you know, the wreath thing. They were putting objects. Yeah. They make it larger. So then we felt we had to do something. We had to up the ante, and we put up something that's just a little bit fancier. And then one day I come home, and they have this monstrosity. I just not exaggerate. It was the width of the door. They had this wreath up. Yeah. So then it was like you know. <laughs> but then you went back and forth like a bunch. And then you did one where it's like you had a wreath that was uh, absolutely the smallest. Well, then I tried like, to... You started getting kind of crazy. You know what I took liberty with is I tried to be funny. Oh, absolutely. So what I did was I kind of I kind of took some liberty and I photoshopped in these welders pretending that they were building something. <laughs> they were actually building the elevator uh. across from my door. They were putting in this new elevator and there was all these guys with like all these like... What do you call it? The, um, you know, they're, they're welding. I forgot what you call the things with the sparks. What do you call a blowtorch? A blowtorch, right? Yeah. They had all these blowtorches and they had these enormous cranes and stuff. So I just simply superimposed that scene yeah. onto my front door. <laughs> and then I showed shots from the planet Earth, from, yeah. from space, and I showed the reef then. And then I mixed it up. Then I threw them for a, a curveball they never came, saw coming. I made the wreath smaller and smaller yeah. until they were very small. And then they kind of sensed that I was... Making fun of them. Making fun of them. And then they found out. Someone told them that there was a couple of like websites that were running this. Because it ran in a couple of like things like Lit Hub ran it. And there was like these small, like really cool websites for literary groups that felt in some reason there was a reason to run these pictures. Yeah. People, I mean, I, I saw it in a couple of different places. It was popping up yeah. throughout, you know, the holiday season. Well, it was important. I was making a statement. It's about people. We're talking Big about... Big headline. New Yorker cartoonist is going crazy. Well, pictures to follow. It's a metaphor for our country. It is. It is. It's exactly what's going on now. And since then, we... Um, we we spoke and stuff, and they said we're good, and I haven't <laughs> spoken to them since. We actually we are not speaking. So were you friends with them before this, or uh, did this reef thing really cause a, a is it a reef riff? I, I would say I would say to be honest, there's always been problems. No, oh. there was a there was always a riff because um, because we see things differently. Mm. But at the same time, I learned from Alan Alda, and this mm. is the callback that you could love your enemies. And I think this year is the first year we're going to do something together. You're going to have a joint reef? I just see robots in some way incorporated in our Christmas decorations. Okay. It's something that shows friendship. The na- By the way, what's really funny is the doors are right next to each other. Very so you close. You can't escape this. Right. They're like really right on top of each other. And there's also some kind of personal space being invaded. If you're going to put up an eight-foot reef that belongs, like let's say – and the front of Best Buy. Yeah. You know what I mean? These are like industrial did you, size. Did you do a cartoon based on this? 
And if you haven't, can you please? Just do a cartoon where it's two doors, a normal-sized reef, and then one that's just like too big and going over the edge of the door too much. I never did anything like this. And this I mean, have so it say something. With, like, right now I'm doing cartoons that are only, the joke is only about something being pumpkin flavored. Okay. Like some woman saying I'm wearing pumpkin flavored underwear. Well, if you can think of uh, a, a funny thing. quote with having just two reefs, one too big and one normal and having it be like, um, you know, worst New York City neighbor, just something that's like understated. Like this is the biggest problem of neighbors in new york city is is them being annoyed at their wreaths being too big i think i'm going to uh. disagree with you yet again no i am do whatever you because want because photos yeah i think are needed to drive this joke to show it's real yeah. you know what i mean True. where people see that this is something that's happening in our country now and not just drawing you know what i mean sometimes a photograph it's like the photo funnies yeah i can just we could put an asterisk that says based on a true story at the bottom of your cartoon ah Good idea. Mm. Photo funnies. Yeah. Let's say we have her opening the door and I superimpose a woman naked like they did in National Lampoon. Always helpful to just toss it in. Right? Yeah. And I could find a picture of someone who looks vaguely like my neighbor. She'll like that. She, oh, yeah. I think she'll love it. Things are good. I feel that things won't are patching up now. <laughs> that won't escalate things quickly at all. Yeah. Something that <laughs> a, a snowman cookie that's going to uh, smooth things over really easy. Absolutely. Well, this was nice. Thank you. Thank you for stopping in. It feels like therapy. I just yeah, just let it all out. I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> I need to lay down. Um, you you have to go someplace now to be a, a creative panel person. Yeah. Are you speaking at this at this thing no, you're going to? I was just invited to okay. go to um, Innovation Now or something. Or, Innovation Station. Or Millenniums for the for the metric system. Some something like that. I don't know why. Millennial Falcons for the for the something. Yeah, exactly. So this, this is like a hipster uh, innovation thing in Brooklyn? I got 40 minutes to grow a beard. Yeah. But let's remind your listeners that you are now selling wooden sunglasses. Yeah, go to weeklyhumorousshop.com and you can buy all kinds of hipster uh, goodies like wooden sunglasses and uh, skull and crossbone neckties. And you'll be halfway home. Oh, yeah. You're going to blend right in at the innovation station. Uh, so people can get the new illustrated history of the snowman. Is this in bookstores this holiday season? Yep, it's out now, and if you can, I have a free talk at the New York Public Library, um, and that is um, in Midtown Manhattan. The times and the details are on my Facebook or my Instagram. Please follow me, Bob Eckstein. It's B-O-B-E-C-K-S-T-E-I-N. So um, reach out. I love to talk to people about work, about cartoons, about jokes. It would be great to hear from people. That would be really great. And then uh, you can get the details of where I'm going to be doing a free talk. I'm doing one in book culture, and that is in the beginning of November. The one in Midtown Libraries at the end of November. And then I'm doing Books of Magic at the beginning of December. Okay. Yeah. So we'll, have, we'll put all that information in this post for this podcast, too, so people who oh, are listening can see all those things. And then we'll tweet and retweet, and we'll post it on the Instagram. You're also very popular on the Instagram, so you should follow Bob on Instagram. It's Bob underscore Eckstein, yeah. uh, all one word. I should have had the dates, but I'm an idiot. It's okay. Okay. But people can find it. Make okay. them hunt you down. Okay. It'll be great. So go say, and buy this, The uh, Illustrated History of the Snowman, which is a beautiful book. And it's a great gift book. It's a great book for people that are fans of snowman and history and just interesting things. 
Yep, Marty's in there a couple of times. He's inside the snowman. He posed. Yeah, every time you see a photo of a snowman, I'm actually uh, trapped. Actually, page 58 and 60. I'm trapped. And see, this is, yeah, this one where they've uh, obviously <laughs> bound and gagged me and then frozen me in snow. That was a long day. And took photos of me. Ugh, that was uncomfortable. So. Uh, but we gave you hot cocoa afterwards. It was very it was nice. All... We were all smiles after that lawsuit. We can laugh about it now. We can laugh about it now. Just like the wreaths. Um, there is sex and violence in the book. It's not a children's <laughs> book, I should explain, because snowman making was an early form of pornography and political commentary in the Middle Ages, but you all knew that already anyway. Of course you knew that, obviously. Yeah. Were they like sex dolls? They were, sex, they were set up in sexually graphic scenes on street corners, and this is at a time where there was no like reading glasses and no books and no HBO. So people would go out and express themselves with free art supplies that were dropped from the sky in front of their doorstep. So the people, people made their own pornography by sculpting snowmen sex scenes. That's right. I mean, this is a real, a real thing, and especially it happened in Brussels where there was the miracle of 1511, which is the most notorious example of this, where over 100 sexual snow scenes and politically charged uh, commentary scenes were made and the political stuff was usually against the government or the church. And this was the way the public would be outraged. They could express themselves because, again, there was there's no other way, yeah. no other communication. It was This is before your podcast, before everything. Right, way before. That's very interesting. And it's interesting to know that you are, you are a snowman expert. That's right. And I've, I spoke and about 100 different radio stations on this subject because around Christmas time, nobody wants to come into work like the week of Christmas. Yeah. So these stations have these people fill in, and they need filler, and, and they Google <laughs> snowman expert or something. And the next thing you know, <laughs> I'm doing like some radio show in like northern Scotland yeah. where I'm on the air, and the guy calls me in, and it's like 3 a.m., and I can't understand a single word from the thick dialect mm -hmm. and the guys go and i just have to guess what he's saying and i just jump in and i answer the question just guessing what the question might just be. answer everything snowman pornography <laughs> and that'll get things going the the light up yeah the, the swishboard just lights up i bet it does yeah i don't know why we're getting to that now where why didn't we start with this oh well, that's fine <laughs> what do i know i just you know uh, the Illustrated History of the Snowman is in bookstores now. Please go pick it up. It's wonderful. It's by Bob Eckstein. He is wonderful. He is a uh, cartoonist and author. And uh, thanks for coming in to Talkward today, Bob. Thanks, Marty. Great to see you. Great to see you, too. Uh, this is Talkward. We are sponsored by Swill, a liquor store in your pocket. Go to GetSwill.com and use code FUNNY5 for $5 off your first order. Please follow Weekly Humorist at Weekly Humorist. And sign up for our daily feed emails at weeklyhumorous.com. Our next guaranteed delivery show is in the mailroom downtown 110 Wall Street, November 7th, 8 p.m. Free tickets can be uh, found at weeklyhumorous.com. We have uh, Wendy Starling and Carmen Lagala, who just did Colbert, will be on. So please check that out. Thanks for listening. I'm Marty Dundix. Uh, this is Talkward, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, Bob. That was fun. You're the best. Ah, oh, you're very good best. at this. Was you're that okay, you think? That was wonderful. Oh, really? Yeah. I can't tell. You know what?